0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, good to be with you guys. As you know, we have been uh, working through the Gospel of Mark together, and today we come to the last section in Chapter 8, which marks a pivotal moment between the first and second half of the Gospel. In the first half of the Gospels, Chapters 1 to 8, Mark has been concerned with the question, who is Jesus? And over the last three years of Jesus' ministry, the disciples have failed to grasp who he is time and time again. But last Sunday, if you were here, we had a turning point in the gospel where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the king who will right the wrongs in the world. And now that the disciples are beginning to grasp who Jesus is, the second half of the gospel focuses on what Jesus has come to do. Now, starting with our passage this morning, the tone of the narrative shifts suddenly because Mark tells us that Jesus begins to speak plainly to the disciples and to the crowds. Jesus is clearly saying, yes, I am the king, but I am not the king that you were expecting. So with that in mind, we're going to read our passage this morning. It's printed in your order of worship, Mark 8:31 through 9-1. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. This is God's word given to us for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you as we are this morning, in the places that we are and that we find ourselves, and we lift our eyes up to you and we say, we are so grateful that you indeed are the king of the world, that this is your world, and that we are your people, that you have not left us alone, but instead you have given us your word And Father, we pray that that word would lead us to the word, the one who calls us to bear our cross as he bore his cross. Help us this morning to see him clearly, and help us to understand what he is asking of each of us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a while back, my uh, kitchen sink uh, began to make a loud thumping sound. And it began vibrating the entire house every time we turned it on. Now, after getting sprayed in the eyes a few times, I realized that the source of the problem was this tiny little hole in the sprayer that was connected to the sink. We tried duct tape, and when that didn't work, we called our handyman to replace it. Now, he's a no-nonsense kind of guy. And after checking it out, he told us that it would be cheaper for us to uh, go to Home Depot and just purchase a new faucet and sprayer combo than for him to replace just the sprayer. Now, I'm happy to report after two months, we no longer have a problem. Now, to be clear, we actually didn't get it fixed. The sprayer still has a hole in it. It still vibrates the entire house when we use the water. But after avoiding going to Home Depot for several weeks, we got uh, really good at working around the problem. We now put the sprayer out from under the sink. We pull it out so it doesn't soak the cabinet. We know how to rig it so the water doesn't spray up in our face. And that thumping sound that was really annoying in the beginning has become kind of soothing white noise to our family. Now, frankly, we could could go on like this for quite a long time. Now, in many ways, I think this is a picture of how we often deal with the brokenness in our own lives. We find workarounds so that we don't deal, have to deal with the real problem. For example, rather than dealing with anxiety that weighs us down, we immerse ourselves in our favorite TV shows. Instead of working towards some semblance of restoration with a friend or a coworker, we soothe ourselves with gossip. Rather than confessing that we have angry hearts and being willing to take steps to change, We make our families learn how to not set us off. Now, not surprisingly, the disciples that we just read about have the same tendency that we do to settle for a patch job rather than holding out for something so much greater. Now, even though the disciples have just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, they are committed to understanding him as a king who will work within their existing power structure in which they live. See, what they want is, they want Jesus to take out the authorities install himself along with them in their place. Because they mistakenly believe that they will do a better job than Herod or Pilate or Caesar. They think that they will be better at resisting the corrupting power They think that they will be less quick to give in to the fear of the crowds. You see, their their hearts, um, they have become completely blind to the vulnerability of their own hearts. And they have no idea that a patch job will result in exactly the same world that they live in. You see, the problem is, is that their expectations are way too low. But Jesus' intention is a complete renovation. He's not just replacing a sprayer or even the faucet system. He is remaking the entire house. Because the foundation is crooked and it needs to be made totally new. Now here's the deal. Here is Jesus' surprising renovation plan. The Son of Man... Must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days, rise again from the dead. And we know that the disciples are shocked when they heard this because all three times that Jesus predicts his death in Mark's gospel, their response is completely out of sync matter of fact, in the next chapter, in chapter 9, they respond, after Jesus predicts his death a second time, um, by getting into an argument about who is the greatest in the kingdom. And then in chapter 10, two of the disciples respond by actually making a pitch to have the best jobs once Jesus becomes king. Now, I think to understand the disconnect, I think it's helpful to look at the lens through which the disciples hear Jesus' teaching this morning. Jesus refers to himself here as the Son of Man, and he does that 14 times in Mark's Gospel. This is the title that Jesus most often uses for himself in the Gospel. It is his favorite title for himself, and he uses it each time, all three times that he predicts his death. And this term, this title is an echo from a prophecy in Daniel 7 that Sarah read for us, our Old Testament lesson. And it is of a figure who would come from heaven with power like a son of man. Who would be this divine figure. Who would be given everlasting dominion and glory and a kingdom that will never be destroyed. This is the image of the Messiah that all the devout in Israel were waiting for. So when Jesus says that the son of man must suffer and die What he's doing in this moment is he is bringing together two incompatible ideas. The Messiah and suffering. The idea of the Messiah, the Son of Man, being defeated and killed makes absolutely no sense. See, the Messiah was supposed to come and make everything right. He was supposed to defeat evil and injustice in the world. And how could he possibly do that? being killed. As Jesus often does, he is flipping the idea of what it means to be great, what it means to rule, and what it means to be victorious on its head. And the reason that he does this is because their true enemy is far more powerful and deadly than Rome. Rome is just a drop in the bucket. Their real enemies, sin and death, live in them and all around them. And Jesus has come to conquer this enemy. In fact, in a short while, he will head to Jerusalem to strike the decisive blow that would turn the world, as they know it, upside down. And the only way to defeat this enemy is to go through it and come out the other side, paving the way for the whole world to follow. And so Peter's strong reaction to Jesus' Jesus' prediction that the Son of Man will die indicates that he understands exactly what Jesus is saying. And like the other disciples, he finds it offensive and wrong. Peter's just like, Jesus... Stop saying crazy things. You're freaking people out. But then Jesus turns and he rebukes Peter. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, as we read this, we may think, wow, that is really harsh But it's harsh until we understand and recall how Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew 4. The devil offered Jesus the earthly kingdom without suffering. He says to Jesus, all this I will give you if you bow down and you worship me. He is being tempted to become king by the short and easy path. And so Jesus rebukes Peter sharply because the temptation is profound. And Jesus says the problem is that Peter is not looking at things from God's point of view. You see, the power that Satan offers, and even the power that the disciples imagine Jesus gaining through a revolution, doesn't have the power to truly heal the world, only to patch it up a bit because hearts aren't changed from the top down. Hearts are changed from the inside out. And Jesus had to take the deep path into the heart of death to break its grip on the world, to free all of creation from death as its inevitable end. So after Jesus insists that he must suffer and die, Mark tells us that Jesus calls the crowds to himself and he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now you can be sure that these two are shocking words for the disciples and the crowds. You know, I think it's important to note that at this point in in Mark's gospel, that Jesus has not yet told the disciples that he was going to die on a Roman cross. He hasn't said anything about how he is going to die. And so for the, the disciples and the crowd, this must have felt immensely jarring to them. There must have been a, a crowd of bewildered faces. They're like, a cross? Really, Jesus, a cross? And don't miss this. The crowd had no sentimental feelings surrounding crosses. Crosses weren't symbolic. They were real instruments of torture and dehumanization and shame where you could look up on a hill and see men dying as a warning not to defy Rome. And if we're honest, it is an off-putting, barbaric image for him to pick as a metaphor for discipleship. Much, much less attractive than pictures that he's painted elsewhere like sheep following a shepherd. But I think what this image of a cross does is give us a picture of total sacrifice. The way Jesus is framing his call to discipleship highlights the costliness of throwing in our lot with him. To take up our cross isn't merely a call to be patient with our suffering in this life. Instead, it is a call to give the whole of ourselves over to the narrow road of following Jesus. And this invitation is for each of us this morning, wherever we are at. Mark tells us that Jesus wasn't just talking to the disciples. He was addressing the entire crowd. From those who were already devoted followers to onlookers who were Merely curious about Jesus to desperate men and women for whom Jesus was their last hope for healing. And he says to all of them, "If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it." Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death of the old man at his call. In many times and places in the world, and certainly for the first Christians who read Mark's gospel, following Jesus may literally have meant giving up their lives. But even when this is not the case, every day there is a death that must take place. Every day there is a death when we say to God, not my will, but your will be done. And when we do this, We are dying to our desire to take up our lives into our own hands and say to God, I know better than you. And let me just acknowledge at the forefront that this is really hard. This is really hard. It's not something that we get overnight. This is a lifetime of walking with God and asking him to change us into people who want his will over our own will. Now, if we're honest, much of the times, like the disciples, we really just want Jesus to merely tweak a few things in our lives. We want a little behavior modification here, some spiritual depth there. I just really want my life to go well. I want to stop hurting people so I can be a good person, a good parent, a good spouse, a good friend. But Jesus is saying to each of us this morning that your expectations are way too low. I have come to die, and you must follow me through death and out the other side. It is an all-in sort of endeavor. But it's always a renouncing of a lesser good for a greater good. I love what Jan Johnson says. She describes death to self simply as setting aside what we want in this moment and focusing instead on loving God with everything that we've got and valuing others as highly as we value ourselves. Don't mistake it. This is a death because something radical has to die in us if we're going to be the kind of people who willingly go last, who willingly give up taking credit, who willingly are willing to be overlooked for the sake of someone else. But the good news is that we do not die alone. We go with our elder brother Jesus and his spirit who directs and encourages and corrects and prays for us along the narrow road that leads to life. The Apostle John writes in John 12 that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You see, if we clutch our life, protecting it, asserting all of our rights, needs, and privileges, we will certainly lose it. Because your life has turned into a grasping, airless prison. If we, however, acknowledge that life is not ours by right, that it is, all of it has been given to us as a gift. We, we will lose it because, um, yeah, we will find it because of the self-giving love of God. And then we will find that in losing it, we will gain everything. You know, some people mistake dying to self for death of self as if m- what makes us us um, dies or goes away. But we know, Jesus says, that the opposite is absolutely true. As we die to the way of living that turns us inward, away from Jesus, we gain a freedom to become who he has made us to be, a freedom to become fully human. This is what C.S. Lewis writes in the conclusion of Mere Christianity. He says, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over." the more truly ourselves we become. Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred and loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. I think Lewis is right, and I think we know from experience that when we run after happiness, we will never find it. When we run after meaning, we will never find it. But when we look to Jesus, the author of life who gives everything meaning, his love allows us to forget ourselves, and suddenly we find that in him we have joy and meaning and life because those things find their genesis in him. Now, this is a strange paradox. But Jesus affirms it time and time again, when we empty our hands and we come to him, he fills us up with himself, which turns out to be better than anything that we could have thought or imagined on our own. More full, fullness of life than we could gain in a thousand lifetimes. And so let me just ask, what in your life is holding you back from giving up your life in order to truly find it? Where in your life is Jesus asking you to deny your version of the good life so that you have the freedom to be able to take up your cross and follow him on the narrow road? The news that our patch jobs will never be enough is really good news for each of us this morning. It means that we can't possibly clean ourselves up enough to be worthy of King Jesus. No patch job will ever make us fit for the kind of kingdom that He is ushering in. And so this means that we can instead give our whole selves over to Him, to the only one who can remake us into the people that we were meant to be. And Jesus invites each of us here this morning to come to him as we are to bring all of ourselves to him. Because the work of the disciple is to cling closely to him as he remakes us and the whole world through his self-giving love in his death and his resurrection. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we just acknowledge that... These are really, really hard words to hear. Father, that is, on this side, it feels unnatural to deny ourselves. And our world tells us every day that we should follow our hearts. And yet we know that our hearts are both a mixture of good and evil. And so, Father, we pray that in this moment that you would change us, that we would be able to open our hands of the things that we hold on to for life, so that we might be able to receive the life that you offer us this morning. Father, we know that denying ourself and taking up our cross is difficult. But we know that you have done it and you call us as your disciples to do it as well. Not so that we, like you, can save the world, but that we could deny ourselves and be able to, as you bear fruit in us, give life, to the world through your grace. Father, thank you for that. Thank you for what you have done for us. And as we continue on in this, in the Gospel of Mark, may you continue to reveal yourself. May you open our eyes to who you are and what you have done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.